After months of stalled negotiations, Senator Joe Manchin announced that he has reached a deal with Chuck Schumer on a reconciliation package. Called the Inflation Reduction Act, the legislation would raise taxes on corporations and top earners, with the goal of funding a number of programs to reduce carbon emissions, address prescription drug costs, and spur the economy. But would these tax changes actually reduce inflation? Would they truly stay targeted at top earners? And with a slim Democrat majority, does it stand a chance of passing through Congress? Hello and welcome to The Deduction, the Tax Foundation podcast. My name is Jesse Solis, Communications Manager here at the Tax Foundation. And on this episode, we are joined by our Senior Policy Analyst, Garrett Watson. Garrett, how are you? Doing well. It's busy Monday. How are you? It is a busy Monday, indeed. It's busy because uh, late last week, Washington kind of uh, got shocked. Uh, news broke. Senator Joe Manchin announced uh, that he and Majority Leader Chuck Schumer reached a deal on a way forward on this thing called the Inflation Reduction Act. Garrett, let's just get right into it. What exactly is the Inflation Reduction Act and why is this announcement a big deal? So the Inflation Reduction Act comes after uh, a big announcement by Senator Joe Manchin that he was walking away from climate and tax uh, provisions that the Democrats have been hammering out. Uh, through the reconciliation process over the past year and a half. But last week was pretty dramatic because Manchin reversed course and came to an agreement with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer uh, to develop uh, a package of of tax changes and climate-related uh, energy changes uh, that uh, was uh, forwarded as the Inflation Reduction Act. And it includes a few major uh, tax changes that we've been talking about a lot here at the Deduction and at the Tax Foundation over the past year and a half. Uh, most notably, the minimum book tax on large corporations of 15%. It also includes a change on how carried interest, which is a form of income that uh, certain folks in the financial sector earn, uh, how that's treated in the tax code. It also includes a few other items, including a few hundred billion dollars in tax credits for uh, green energy and climate-related spending, as well as revenue from both uh, additional IRS enforcement, very similar to what we saw last fall, and a package of, of drug pricing provisions uh, that will impose certain price caps and uh, other penalties to try to reduce the growth in drug spending. So overall, a very uh, disparate uh, package and a package that's really the product of uh, this compromise that Democrats have had to make uh, based on the very narrow 50-seat uh, makeup in the Senate. So we're talking about this big package that focuses a lot of spending on the climate as well as on energy. That's correct? That's right. That is the focus and the place where they could get uh, majority support. It also, uh, according to official scorekeepers, reduces the, the deficit uh, by a couple hundred billion dollars, uh, though we will have our own independent estimates out soon uh, to provide a, a complement to that analysis. Okay, so let's get into kind of the nitty gritty of this deal. You mentioned a few different tax changes there. So let's kind of go through those one by one, see what we're looking at. Uh, you mentioned a 15% corporate minimum tax. Uh, what exactly is that and what would its impact be? Right. So this minimum book tax is really the product of conversation about and concerns that some folks have over the fact that uh, sometimes uh, corporations uh, have reported profits to their shareholders on their books, uh, but they aren't paying any, uh, any taxes uh, or low rate of tax. Uh, and that's because uh, the way in which we calculate financial profits and the way our tax code works uh, is different because we provide incentives in the tax code to invest uh, in the United States. We provide incentives for research and development, for example. Uh, we also provide a cost recovery incentives. Uh, and, and, and that's because these two sets of books are really doing uh, serving different purposes, right? One is trying to inform shareholders, the other uh, to uh, ensure that um, the tax code is incentivizing investment. 
Uh, but this this proposal would try to align those by imposing a, a minimum tax on uh, on what is known as book income, uh, which in terms of impact is going to complicate the tax code. It is far from a perfect uh, solution. It seems like even politically, a lot of folks who, um, who otherwise will support this uh, are uh, also skeptical of it, and it's really the product of that of that tight negotiation we just talked about a little bit before. Uh, because rate hikes, for example, in the form of a corporate income tax, are is currently off the table. That minimum book tax is the second best, uh, but it's it's really far from ideal because it's moving us in a more complicated direction. It's also not clear that it actually will close this gap between book and taxable income because a lot of the items that that cause that gap are still exempted from this tax. So green energy credits, uh, R and D credits, that still will push corporate uh, effective rates below fifteen percent. And this tax won't touch that at all. And this isn't really a, a new idea that they're working on here, right? This is something they've been trying to get for some time um, that I guess they've found a way to move forward with. That's right. This has been under consideration going back to when President Biden proposed it uh, early on uh, in his uh, in his tenure. The White House was talked about in some form, uh, even during the 2020 campaign. So this has been a long time coming and it's been under a strong scrutiny. But even with that, there are still a lot of uncertainties about how this will impact uh, corporations moving forward. Uh, and of course, there's also concern that it will impact folks uh, who are everyday people who own corporate uh, stock uh, that will be less valuable in the face of this tax. And that last point I want to get to uh, a little bit later, but let's keep going through some of the tax changes here. Um, not quite a tax hike or change, but the package does call for more funding for the Internal Revenue Service. Uh, what's the, kind of the motive here? Uh, what are they hoping that will achieve? Right. So much like this this book tax, the IRS enforcement conversation has been ongoing over the past couple of years. And this proposal would increase IRS uh, spending and resources by about $80 billion. And the Congressional Budget Office has estimated that that would, uh, because it, that those resources would be going toward helping uh, increase enforcement and increasing audits, it will bring in about $200 billion in additional revenue. So on net, it's about $120 billion over 10 years. And the idea here is if the IRS has more resources to go after folks who are not otherwise complying with their taxes, uh, this will uh, allow them to bring in revenue that should otherwise have been collected, but is not because of the lack of tax compliance. Uh, but here, there's also uncertainties, right? I mean, the IRS is currently mired in uh, millions of, of backlog returns, is dealing with an unprecedented uh, problem with customer service. And they're still going to have to catch up on all of that in addition to increasing audits and, and increasing enforcement. And so a lot of this revenue is subject to guesswork. It may take longer than the CBO thinks for it to come in. And that's going to impact how much revenue comes in in the short run uh, from this side. And just for clarity, this funding, anything to deal with IRS in this package is only going towards enforcement. It's not going towards those other problems the IRS is facing right now. That's right. It's primarily pushed for enforcement and increasing audit rates. There is a, some language in the bill that would try to protect those earning less than $400,000 a year, uh, though it's really unclear how that would be enforceable uh, because money is fungible and uh, the IRS is, uh, takes a holistic approach to their, their auditing. So that's something to watch and to see how they use those, those dollars. And it would be really important, and we might see this in the discussion over the next week, that the IRS is also... There's clear standards of accountability and uh, clear goals for what we expect from this additional uh, additional amount of money we're giving them, uh, given that this this money is um, a pretty substantial amount, given the their current funding levels. Gotcha. Um, so a couple other tax things I think we should touch on. Uh, next, let's talk about prescription drugs for a minute. Um, for years, Democrats have been talking about this idea of wanting to let Medicare negotiate the cost of prescription drugs. Uh, I know... With 
a lot of people know that's not a new idea. It's something that's been discussed within the party for a long, long time. Uh, why are we seeing that in this package specifically? And what would the impact of this proposal be? Right. So one of the, the mainstays of this, this package, as you can tell by the title of the Inflation Reduction Act, is they're trying to argue that these proposals, anything in this package will reduce inflation. And for a lot of folks, of course, they think of prescription drugs, which have seen uh, an increased uh, level of prices for certain drugs over the last 10 years above the rate of inflation. And that's something Democrats have wanted to tackle for a long time. It was included in their uh, discussion on Build Back Better last year. Uh, and it was one of the few proposals that had enough support in the Senate to move forward. Before the tax and climate stuff came back last week, it was expected that reconciliation would be used for this package. And what, what the package does, it's a combination of carrots and sticks meant to uh, encourage uh, prescription drug manufacturers to price their products uh, in a way that's closer to the rate of inflation. And that, for advocates, advocates argue that that will help reduce uh, prices for everyday families who take these prescription drugs. It will allow Medicare to negotiate uh, those drugs. So that will allow Medicare's power in the market to, um, to try to reduce them. They, it also imposes a fairly high effective excise tax on drugs that are priced above certain rates of inflation uh, with a, a rate upwards of 1,500%. And that, that's not, I did not misspeak. That is the actual effective rate. Uh, so it's pretty draconian in that, that way. And con- the major concern for this part of the, of the package is uh, there's pretty good evidence and reason to think that this will reduce the amount of uh, drug innovation in the United States. The Congressional Budget Office found that this may reduce uh, the number of drugs that come to market in the long run. And that makes a lot of sense, right? When you put a price control or a price cap on prescription drugs, uh, makers are going to have less of an incentive to take a risk. Uh, to produce drugs that are going to save people's lives. And while we talk about the dollars and cents of direct tax hikes, this is just as, if not more important than those dollars and cents when you think about someone's life who otherwise could be saved uh, due to a drug that's not coming to market because of these price controls. Mm. And of course, we've talked about that proposal in the past, uh, plenty on taxfoundation.org if you want some more details into what all Democrats are proposing there. Uh, Finally, when it comes to taxes, um, I'm going to quote Mr. Manchin here. He said they are closing, quote, the carried interest loophole, end quote. Uh, Garrett, I'm always a bit skeptical when I hear the word loophole. Um, it's often thrown around without definition. Um, so how about you tell us what this carried interest loophole is and uh, kind of just the specifics of what is going on? Sure. So uh, in, in summary, what carried interest is a form of compensation that certain folks in the financial industry earn when they uh, are basically coordinating with investors to put money into often early stage startups. Uh, and as part of that deal, they will take a portion of the return from that deal. Uh, and that's how they make a lot of their, uh, their return. And part of that is what is known as carried interest. And under, under current rules, uh, if you hold on to that, uh, that investment in, in say, an early stage part, startup for at least three years, you can book that income as long-term capital gains. And the reason why that's important is because those gains are subject to a lower tax rate of upwards of 20% uh, versus the top uh, ordinary income tax rate of 37%. And what uh, what folks argue uh, who are critical of this provision is that it's all of this income, this carried interest should be subject to that higher 37% tax rate. So it comes down to a wonky debate about whether it's closer to uh, a form of capital gains or a form of labor income. But what this provision would do is a little, little narrower. It would just extend that time from a required holding period of three years to five years. So if you hold it for four years and you sell, you'll have to pay that 37% rate rather than 20%. But it's pretty small. It's going to raise about $14 billion over 10 years uh, versus you know upwards of $300 billion for the um, in-book tax. 
but it's still going to be, I think, part of the discussion because certain senators who are reviewing the, uh, the language right now may be uh, more, more skeptical of this provision. So it's possible it falls out. That's something worth following, uh, particularly if we're worried about how that might impact uh, venture capital and startup financing in the U.S., which is a big source of, of American innovation. So it's, uh, we're talking about some pretty complicated taxes here. Um, and like you said, the majority is to work with to get all these uh, new changes across the board. Garrett, let's look at two kind of cu- talking points here before we wrap up um, as this package moves forward. Number one, we go back to the campaigns in 2020. We go back to pretty much any press release this White House has put out. President Biden has pledged not to raise taxes on anyone making less than 400000 a year. Garrett, does the Inflation Reduction Act raise taxes on anyone making less than 400000 a year? Well, when it comes to direct tax hikes in terms of tax bill, a tax bill that comes from the government, uh, the, this package generally does not. However, the, the whole problem with the whole, the whole conceptual under, underlying of this pledge is that somehow taxpayers and households and Americans only care about the tax bill that they're actually remitting to the government and not to their total incomes uh, after they earn their paycheck and pay taxes. And the latter is really what matters, right? And uh, the nonpartisan Joint Committee on Taxation uh, and other uh, scorers in this uh, in this world have found that this uh, package would reduce American incomes because uh, it's going to raise taxes on corporate corporations and everyday people do hold on to a corporate stock that are going to be reduced uh, in value because of this. It also will, of course, uh, reduce uh, overall wages for uh, workers uh, because some portion of it is borne by workers. But even if we assumed it wasn't, right, there's still folks who are invested in their retirement accounts from corporate equities. And um, this is a tax hike on corporations. So it's uh, that tax has to be paid by someone. It's not it's not a free ride. And it's going to be borne by by some portion by, by folks who earn less than $400,000 a year. It's really important uh, to, to make to make that clear. Um, and that's especially true in the long run, because a lot of the spending, including the, you know, the healthcare subsidies that are also included in this package uh, are going to expire in the next three years. Uh, and so that, that's something that I think we're going to continue to just talk about. That's been a big point of conversation the last two years is how do we think about corporate tax changes and tax changes on higher earners? How does it impact the everyday person? Uh, and I think the, the latest you know numbers by the JCT uh, show well that this will have an impact on everyday folks. And of course, if this passes, this won't be the only you know, tax talk about expirations we'll be having over the next couple of years here. Tons of things set to um, expire soon. Um, now, with that, too, and of course, you mentioned, you know, someone has to pay these taxes. Inflation, in many ways, is also a tax hike. Garrett, does this act live up to its name? Does it reduce inflation? So that one of the underlying theories here is that by, uh, you know, raising taxes uh, by a few hundred billion dollars a year and reducing the deficit, that will you know, drive down demand in the economy and help us uh, sort of reduce and tame inflation. And when it comes to that narrow channel, that may be true, but you have to look at this holistically First of all, uh, by raising taxes, not only are you reducing demand in the short run, you're also going to be reducing the productive capacity of the economy over the medium to long term. And that itself will have put pressure on prices uh, in, the, in the opposite direction, in the wrong direction. Uh, so that, that's one big one uh, that I think is important to, to think about. When we think about the long run, especially, that's going to be a problem. The second is this is paired with, with uh, certain uh, increases in spending, especially on the healthcare subsidies uh, and on the climate tax credits that may uh, actually stimulate inflation. And uh, the big assumption you have to make is that the tax hikes are going to more than offset that increase in spending. That may not happen, especially if, for example, the minimum book tax ends up uh, bringing in less than expected. 
Uh, if, if IRS enforcement takes longer to get off the ground than expected, the drug pricing stuff doesn't really kick into the second half of the decade. So I think that there's actually a good case to be made that uh, in the first few years, this is going to have at best a wash on inflation. And at worst, it may even uh, slightly stimulate inflation overall. Uh, and the last thing I mentioned on deficit reduction is it assumes that the temporary expansion in health benefits uh, is actually temporary. But, but we have every reason to believe that that will be made permanent or there'll be a push to make it permanent. And if you do that, most of that deficit reduction just disappears. And so we, we end up back in the same discussion we had last year about the child tax credit, where some of that is a budget gimmick that's hiding the true cost of these items over the long run. Garrett, informative as always. Uh, look, this thing uh, it was announced last week um, in D.C. Congress usually goes on recess during the month of August. So I guess my last question um, is Congress going to sign this or you know, pass this thing this week and send it to the president's desk? Um, or is this kind of just a lot of uh, buzzworthy news for the moment that may fizzle out as you know election season comes up, as everything comes up? Uh, what, what's the next thing, next step for this package? Well, I think if anything, over the last couple of years, uh, what uh, this reconciliation process has taught us is uh, never to be too confident in your forecasting because we thought this was uh, this tax title was dead uh, as recently as a week ago. But I think what we can say is that that there is a very aggressive timeline uh, that the Senate is looking at right now to undergo all of the complicated reconciliation process and hoping to have a vote by this weekend. Uh, it looks like that that may be too aggressive. It's very possible this spills into next week and the Senate must may have to delay their uh, their August recess that they traditionally take. Uh, and and that's assuming, of course, that there's no further changes to this uh, this legislation and that folks like Senator Cinema do not have uh, asks that may further delay uh, the process. Uh, the big one to watch is there's this uh, this is for folks who watch the Senate fun process called Votorama, where there are upwards of a thousand plus amendments that senators uh, look at and develops a lot of uh, political conversation. So that's something folks should watch closely and see if that changes anything over the next couple of days. Uh, but we very well might be looking at you know the next couple of weeks where this uh, they try to iron this out and, and get it to the finish line. Last thing I'll say is if it does make it to the House, I think more likely than not it does pass. It looks like folks who were otherwise skeptical have. Um, back to this so that the big blocker will be in the Senate. So all, all eyes on the Senate uh, this week and possibly next and possibly the next one after that. Uh, Garrett, I usually ask uh, what people can expect you in the upcoming months ahead. I'm going to guess it's just the Inflation Reduction Act for the time being. So for those updates, where can people find you on Twitter? I'm at DS underscore Watson on Twitter. You can find our work at taxfoundation.org. Great, Garrett. Thank you so much. We'll talk again soon. Thanks so much. The Deduction is produced by Dan Carvajal. To learn more about the Tax Foundation and the deduction, visit us online at taxfoundation.org slash podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn at Tax Foundation, as well as on Twitter at DeductionPod. Thank you, and we'll see you next time on The Deduction.